3: he's a warrior king he seems to be magnanimous in victory he has all the sort of great virtues that you'd want from a a medieval king and when something seems too good to be true as a historian i just want a little closer look
4: that was max adams discussing alfred the great the Royal Institution was set up to
5: really kind of communicate science to people, to the, to the public, and initially really focusing on grown-ups, but, yeah, it was Faraday's idea to bring the kids in.
4: And that was Helen Scales talking about the Royal Institution Christmas Lectures.
0: You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, where the UK's best-selling history magazine available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
4: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. First up today, we're going to be hearing about the Anglo-Saxon king Alfred the Great, whose story is explored by the historian and author Max Adams. Max Adams in his new book, Alfred's Britain, War and Peace in the Viking Age. He spoke to our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorne.
0: So to start off, perhaps you could tell us a bit about how historians and the public have traditionally viewed Alfred the Great and how or why you're challenging this view.
3: Well, he's, he's fantastic, Alfred, isn't he? I mean, he's, he's perfect. <laughs> um, what we know of him, he comes across as a... a a brilliant man, a, a man who sort of shines out from his age, a man of intellect, a, a warrior king. So he's a, he's a successful general. He's a warrior king. He seems to be magnanimous in victory. Um, he has all the sort of great virtues uh, that you'd want from a, a medieval king. And when something seems too good to be true, as a historian, I just want a little closer look far and away the most we know about Alfred is from his either his own pen or the pens of people he commissioned to write. So rather like Winston Churchill, he managed to ensure history's enduring affection by making sure he wrote it. Um, and as a historian, of course, it is your obligation to scrutinise that and be a little bit more careful.
0: How have you gone about reconstructing the real Alfred? What sources are available?
3: Well, uh, the most obvious one is is the life of King Alfred, uh, written by uh, his bishop Asser, who was a Welshman uh, and a sort of zealous convert to the Wessex cause during the Viking period. And in in about eight eight ninety, during a very brief period of peace and tranquility in Alfred's Wessex, uh, Alfred commissioned him to write this. Uh, Story And a lot of it is copied directly out of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which Alfred was also having compiled at the same time. So those two have to be read together uh, with with care because, of course, it is a propagandist narrative of the Wessex court. So you don't expect Alfred to come out of it badly. Um, You also have to look up – because there's not much else that was being written about Alfred – Uh, by anyone else because that's the narrative that survives. Um, But we do get hints. And and one of the most dispassionate uh, sources we have is coinage. Coinage is really interesting because, um, I mean, if I pick up a pound coin now, it projects an image which goes back even beyond Alfred of, um, of a king or queen. And after the for example, on this pound coin, I've got Elizabeth II, DG, Dei Gratia, by grace of God, okay, legitimized by God. And Fid Def well, that goes back, of course, defender of the faith to Henry VIII. It's a projection of state power and control. And Alfred produces coins which have a head in profile like our modern ones do. Um, there's no denomination because they're all pennies, uh, silver. But... Um, But the coin carries all sorts of clues and hints about the reality of things. First of all, where do we find coins? If Alfred is, as we like to be told, um, founder of the Kingdom of England, we'd expect to find them everywhere. Well, they're not. They don't go beyond Wessex. Um, uh, Secondly, the the content of the coin and the design tell us something about how realistic that king's ideas of, uh, of grandeur are. For example, um, Alfred's coins start with a very low silver content. It's a bit, well, it is literally a devalued pound. Um, by the end of his reign, it's a very, very high silver content. That tells us that he's been successful in controlling the flow of silver and coinage in his kingdom. But there's, there's a set of coins which give us a very, very different view of Alfred, and um, they're called the two emperors coinage series. Um, Alfred, like lots of kings, produces coins to show he's succeeded in something. So there's a there's a series that is minted in London uh, in the 880s to show that Alfred has retaken it from the Vikings. Um, London, very important trading center, and um, a, a, again, a place where you project control. But uh, there's this series called The Two Emperors, and um, one of them is minted in Wessex and shows Alfred and another king looking at each, facing each other. And the other is minted in Mercia by a king called Cholwulf. Um, and Cholwolf has been completely written out of uh, the narrative. So when, when Alfred is at his most uh, vulnerable, he's, he's driven into the Somerset marshes in the episode that produces the cake story, the burning of the cake story which is, again, not really an Alfred story, but it's been conveniently added on. And all sorts of things are added on to that myth later. Um, Alfred fights back um, and fights back alone, according to the Chronicle and according to Assa, so that finally at Eddington in 878, he crushes the Vikings single-handed and uh, the good guys win. But this series of coins issued jointly by him and Cholwów suggests actually that he had a key ally in the King of Mercia and that Cholwów survived long enough to fight in this battle and help Alfred win the war against the Vikings. Well, that has been completely written out of all documentation and the only evidence we have for that is the coinage. Another interesting one is that the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle has variations. There was an original and it was copied in... There's probably a northern copy. There's a Peterborough copy. There's a there's a Worcester copy. Um, and these copies have additions made by local scribes whose interests aren't always Wessex's interests. And the career of Alfred's daughter, the brilliant Adolf Lad, um, who he he has married to uh, a Mercian. Really, he's a king, but of course. Because he doesn't suit the narrative, he's written out and he's called an elderman. And he's portrayed in all the Wessex sources as uh, a very doughty lieutenant uh, to Alfred in supporting his fight back against the Danes. He's married to Alfred's daughter, who's a really genuinely remarkable woman. We know quite a lot about her, but not from Alfred, not from the Wessex Chronicle. There's an addition to the the chronicle that was written in Mercia. Which is sort of West Midlands, which bigs uh, big Athel flad up, um, calls her the Lady of the Mercians. She's effectively de facto Queen of Mercia in later years because her husband's rather infirm. Um, so we, we know from the Mercian version of the chronicle that the Alfred alone, without any help dimension, just, just won't wash. And given that we have those two bits of evidence, we begin to suspect that all is not quite as it seems. And then when we begin to read between the lines of Asser and the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, we see that the cracks appear in the perfect Alfred as King David narrative that he's trying to project.
0: So Alfred um, maybe wasn't as central to this period as people have suggested. He was perhaps part of a bigger, more complicated story.
3: What One doesn't want in any way to lower Alfred in anybody's estimation. He's a brilliant king, probably the greatest king uh, that the English have had um, out of a fairly motley crew, it has to be said. Um, Now, Alfred is as brilliant as people say. It's just that it's not the whole story. Um, We know from reading between the lines that he faced massive amounts of opposition. Uh, One of his key generals betrayed him. Um, And and that's partly because of the internal politics. Um, Alfred had four older brothers, each of whom died before him. Well, those brothers had children and some of those children were eligible males who believed they had a right to the kingship of Wessex. Okay. So there's, there's an undercurrent of potential rebellion. And we know what rebels do. They side with the enemy. And in at least two cases, possibly three, the sons of Alfred's brothers uh, ally with Vikings uh, or Alfred's other enemies in the north to try and overthrow him. So although Alfred is as brilliant as historians would have us believe, um, it was not a smooth passage and he faced serious rebellion several times. Um, And what I think you have to remember is that Alfred's legacy as the founder of an English state only stands up because his son and daughter were so conspicuously brilliant and because his grandson, um, who wasn't quite so conspicuously brilliant, but was very, well, Athelstan wasn't so brilliant, but he was very successful. Um, Building on this idea that Alfred had of what we would call professionalizing the Anglo-Saxon state. So what Alfred really leaves us is an idea of professional kingship. What are the rights and duties of a king he must fight. He must coerce his people into building defences for the whole of the realm, and by the whole of the realm, I mean Wessex. I don't, don't. Alfred's rule doesn't extend beyond the the, the Thames. It, it's not England. It's Wessex. Um, he can't even build forts in Kent or Cornwall. He, his control doesn't extend that far. Um, and it's his son and daughter and grandson who eventually roll out the Wessex state, this professional idea of statehood with administrators and bureaucrats and coinage and efficiency and learning. And Alfred understands that a civilized language and a bureaucracy and a judiciary that can read and write equals a civilized state. That is completely revolutionary. Well, I say revolutionary, he's probably nicked it from Charlemagne, but um, revolutionary for, for the British Isles anyway.
0: So you obviously acknowledge that um, Alfred was brilliant and he played a part in his own success. But what other factors also um, helped him out?
3: One of the things I've tried to do in this book is to give Alfred his due, but to confine his contribution geographically so that I'm just as interested in what's going on in Scotland and Wales and the area north of Watling Street, which has no narrative history for this period. We don't know what's going on in Nottingham, Leicester, Derby, Lincoln, and Stanford, the the five boroughs of the Vikings. We only know from archeology. span We do have a source from further north, which opens up a window onto bits and pieces. uh, And that source I've called the Historia de Sancto Conferto is is a record of the survival of the Lindisfarne church right through the Viking period. Uh, and that seems to me to be key to to shedding a light on the experience of most of the british isles in dealing with the viking period because the vikings never really take over wessex but they take over large chunks of the rest of the british isles and ireland and if you want to understand that you have to go to the archaeology um and to and to these more slightly more obscure sources uh, the historia is a, is a rather brilliant narrative because it gives us an exact explicit account of how local Christian leaders, that's church leaders, um, came to some sort of arrangement with Viking kings so that they could keep their lands and their political influence and in return would, would keep the people on the side, as it were. That's a really fascinating insight that you don't get from the Wessex accounts at all. Completely missing from them, um, and for Scotland and Wales, the notices are brief, mostly in Irish sources. Um, but we do know that that by the the time of Alfred's sons, uh, daughter, and grandsons, a kingdom is emerging in Wales under a, a rather brilliant man called Howald Dar, Howel the Good, who seems to have been responsible for the promulgation of a of a very enlightened law code. And in Scotland, the emergence of a dynasty. Who's conspicuous king, again, I don't think that many people in Scotland learn about him at school, Uh, Constantine MacAid, who rules Scotland from about 900 for well over 40 years and establishes a state there which looks pretty sophisticated, but which we know very little about.
0: As you mentioned earlier, as well as a reputation as a great military leader, Alfred has a reputation as a thinker and a man of books. Um, is that deserved?
3: Yes, he he may have learned to read uh, in youth, but 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 possibly not in, in later life. During the Viking wars, he he has the zeal of the convert for learning Latin and writing in Latin and English. And apart from his decision to make sure that all his bishops buy into this great learning program, this sort of Carolingian renaissance that he promotes, in the face of considerable odds, he himself begins to embark on a a career of of writing. He translates uh, various ancient books of of the Greek and Latin world that that matter to him. and in translating them, he, and we, of course we have those originals as well as his translations, um, we get an insight into Alfred the thinker because he inserts things in prefaces uh, which are clearly Alfredan and don't belong to anybody else. So he's a clever man. <laughs> and when you think that he's a warrior as well as a thinker, deeply pious, there's no question about that, um, he's very much into uh, reforming the church. Perhaps not successfully, but he's into it. Um, but uh, yeah, his, his surviving work, in his, he's the first king, of course, of, uh, of England, in whose words we have. That makes him a very attractive figure for historians because you can hear Alfred's authentic voice.
0: You mentioned earlier about the burning of the cakes. Um, yeah. What are some of the most pervasive myths that surround Alfred? And can we get at the, a kernel of truth behind any of them?
3: Yeah, well, one thing we, we, we try to do is find out where those myths first come from. Um, Matthew Parker in the 16th century nicked the story of the cakes from a story about St. Neot, and bolted it on to Asser's life of Alfred. Uh, it's a fake. I mean, it, it, it's an early story, but it's not to do with Alfred. It it, it appears in another source. So that's, that's one. Um, that's not to say that that episode isn't credible. I and mean, I think it is quite a credible episode, but um, but it's you know it's not verifiable. Um, in another one, Saint Cuthbert appears to him in his hour of darkness in the Somerset marshes and says, "If if you if you remember me, Saint Cuthbert, being effectively the community of Lindisfarne, far away to the north, if you remember me and think of me, I will ensure your victory. Uh, I, and especially if you think of me and remember me to your sons and grandchildren." I will bring you victory. We know that that story was written in the something like 50 or 60 years later and retrospectively inserted into an Alfredan story um, at a time when uh, Alfred's grandchildren were making common cause with the community of St. Cuthbert in Northumbria. So, some of those things we can spot. Um, there's a rather good story of Alfred uh, disguising himself as a minstrel and going and spying in the Viking camp. Well, it's a sort of thing that's not impossible, and yet it sounds very like King David, uh, who does pretty much the same thing. And Bishop Asser sees Alfred as King David. So anything that looks Davidian, um, fighting against the giant menace and um, inserting oneself into into the enemy camp as a spy, you just suspect might be a bit of a ringer.
0: You suggest in your book um, that historians um, have a way of smoothing out and slightly wrinkles. Um, Is there anything less positive about Alfred that you think has kind of been swept under the carpet?
3: Well, I think he was pretty unpopular with his people. Um, (laughs) He's running what we would now call a, a martial austerity government and those people don't tend to be popular. Uh, Asa lets us into a few secrets. He says that Alfred—he's talking about Alfred imposing this system of burrs, these fortified towns—and he admits um, there's a wonderful quote. I—I I could find it for you. He admits that um, Alfred uh, persuaded and cajoled his people, who were unwilling to do these things, on behalf of of an idea of a kingdom that really doesn't belong in England. This idea of nation is, is not an English idea at all. They're regional. There's Kent, there's Surrey, there's Sussex, there's Wessex. Um, they don't like the idea of a whole kingdom or a united kingdom. That's that's an idea of the church, really. And they resent it. And, and Asser admits that at times um, Alfred had to chastise his nobles. Well, yeah, you can guess what that means <laughs> as well as I can. He, he he did some strong-arm stuff. And I'm sure some of the disloyalty shown by his his nobles comes down to the fact they did not like him imposing this command economy on a countryside already devastated by rage. So, the, these taxes were an imposition that um, I, I think Alfred's subjects bitterly resented And sometimes they must have thought that being under the Vikings was better because the Vikings didn't really have a a professional bureaucratic state that could do that.
0: Which is really quite interesting because the thing that um, Alfred is celebrated for is creating England and um, kind of imposing this wider um, state. And that might have been the very thing that wasn't popular about him at the time.
3: Massively. Some very, very ancient Territories like Hwyki, which is the the lands of what became the medieval diocese of Worcestershire, that name and that identity survived well into Alfred's period and beyond. Um, Mercia, there are at least three regional identities in Mercia, none of which get on with each other. Um, Kent regards itself as superior to all other kingdoms um, for various reasons. East Anglia, even in Alfred's grandson's day... When Athelstan, this goes back to the coinage. Athelstan produces a a portrait coin with the with the inscription Rex Totius Britanniae, very pretentious Latin, King of all the British. Well, the East Anglians won't have that coinage; they take that inscription off. And uh, in York, they won't have it with his portrait on. Uh, and in Mercia, they do it without the inscription as well. So this attempt to write a unification project. Um, over the whole of what we would call England, just doesn't wash. There are lots of kingdoms and regions. They all regard themselves as completely distinct um, and they do not like the Wessex project. Northumbria doesn't like it. Mercia doesn't like it. East Anglia doesn't like it. Cornwall doesn't like it. Kent doesn't like it. The Welsh hate it and the Scots have nothing to do with it. So that really is a retrofitted myth that suits later kings of england alfred doesn't found england and he doesn't it's not even his ambition alfred is content to be overlord so in the sense that in the english empire britain was had overlordship over these vast distant territories in other words we are obliged to fight in their wars and we are obliged to follow their political line other than that they more or less leave us alone alfred and his heirs wish to write a narrative of a, a sense of natural justice In England, an idea of England, or Wessex being the overlord of all the Anglo-Saxon states, and then of England being the overlord of Scotland and Wales and Ireland, um, and parts of Europe, of course, um, it doesn't wash because it wasn't ever true.
4: That was Max Adams. Alfred's Britain, War and Peace in the Viking Age, is out now, published by Head of Zeus. And you can read a written version of this interview in our Christmas issue, which is currently on sale and also includes articles on the Peasants' Revolt, the Halifax Disaster, Abraham Lincoln's sense of humour and a whole lot more. Look out for it in your local newsagent now or in one of our many digital formats.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all.
2: That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, .com slash history
1: extra. eBay Motors is here for the ride.
4: BBC Focus magazine, has recently launched its own podcast. Entitled Science Focus, it explores the latest developments in science and technology. On their most recent episode, they've included an interview about the Royal Institution Christmas Lectures, and we thought it was something our History Extra listeners would be interested in too. Launched in 1825 by Michael Faraday, These annual lectures were designed to bring scientific ideas to a general audience. Now broadcast by the BBC, they've become a fixture of Christmas schedules. Marine biologist Helen Scales has written a new book about the Christmas lectures, and she's been discussing their history with Science Focus's Alexander McNamara.
6: So, you've just written a book
4: about the Christmas
6: lectures. Um, What is it about them that just, just captures our imagination?
5: Oh, it's such a good question because I mean I remember being uh, growing up as a kid and uh, and being glued to the TV every Christmas really rushing down to pick up the copy of the Radio Times and figure out when they were going to be on and circling them in with felt tip pen and then yeah I think I, I think maybe it's something. To do with just the way that the presenters that they choose for the Christmas lectures are able to absolutely captivate their audience and um, and bring to life science and make it just so exciting and um, and just show us that it's it's kind of all around us and um, it's all going on it's all there to be explored for ourselves. Um, yeah, they're just such great communicators. I I always desperately wanted to be in the room in that wonderful lecture room in London, the Faraday Lecture Theatre at the Royal Institution, um, sitting in the audience and you know sticking my hand in the air so I could come down and and do one of the demonstrations because so many of these lectures are so hands-on there are loads of exciting um, experiments and things that the kids can get involved in and I think all together it's just yeah just a very very different and and very um, vibrant way to get kids um, interested in science.
6: Mm. And they, they clearly do and they have done for for is it now? How how long have they been going on for? A long time.
5: It's a long time. So the first ones um, were in 1825, and it was Michael Faraday himself um, who set them up. He was very keen to get um, to get young audiences. He was really keen to get young audiences uh, interested in science. I mean, the Royal Institution, as a as a as an institution, was set up to to really kind of communicate science to people to the to the public, um, and initially really focusing on grown ups. But uh, yeah, it was Faraday's idea to bring the kids in. Um, so yeah, nearly two hundred years. Almost every year, I think, since 1825, apart from during the war, there was a, a bit of a break, and always in that same lecture room, which is rather wonderful. Um, and yeah, just a real tradition to have these festive time lectures. Um, usually, somewhere between three and six um, hour long lectures are given or somewhere over the festive period. Um, originally, just for the kids in the room, but now they're televised. You can watch them on um, on the internet. Um, they get uh, broadcast around the world, so they have a huge huge audience and I think a real loyal following I mean not just amongst kids but you know grown-ups like me who grew up watching them and still really really love seeing so many different types of science being presented um, in front of us in such a lovely way.
6: So obviously Faraday started it those 200 years ago uh, He said there's been lots of different kinds of science how did it how, what were the sort of experiments that were being done back then 200 years ago and obviously compared to now they must be so 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 wildly different.
5: Faraday himself gave about, I think, 19 of the lectures, and one of the most, um, I guess one of the most famous ones, and one that um, he wrote a book about. A lot of the lectures actually did end up writing books after their lectures, and, and that's for me been a really important source of information for, for writing the books, kind of looking back at the history of the lectures. But um, one that Faraday wrote in um, particular was The the Chemical History of a Candle, and um, he just took this familiar, simple object and spun these incredible stories about, about that thing, how it works, what it's made of, what's actually going on when you, when you light a candle. Um, and that book, I think, has been in print ever since, you know, since it was written back in the 19th century. So pretty cool stuff. Um, and I think in a way that's, you know, you say all the stuff that they talked about before would be sort of wildly out of date. But I mean, that's the joy of the history of science, really. It's showing us how we've moved up on how how ideas have advanced and new discoveries have been made, but understanding how we got there is is really important too, and how our ideas of the world and of science have changed. Um, and you know, and I think in a way it's wonderful that we have these uh, lectures to show us what we did think about the world back at different times in the past and still some of it hasn't changed and when we do move on um and, and keep those ideas with us and there's another book actually my my book that i wrote focused on the natural history and um sort of lectures about the natural world but there's another one. Um, by Colin Stewart that came out last year called 13 Journeys Through Space and Time. And he he wrote about the Christmas lectures that looked into cosmology and looking out into space at the planets and so on. And I know very little about that. That's really not my area of science. So reading that for me was just a wonderful insight into how much you know? We've changed our views of outer space and discovering planets, and things, you know, just really extraordinary discoveries have been made in the last 200 years. And, and I think his book really does show you how how ideas have changed and how technology have cha- has changed. one thing that I thought was just delightful about his book is that early on the lecturers sort of from the 19th century are wondering about oh you know maybe one day people will go into space and who knows what will go on and and then by the final one in 2015 the one last one in his book um they're actually talking live um on a live link up to Tim Peake up on the International Space Station It's is like just what would those early lecturers have thought if they'd have known that this is where we were going so you know just just delightful stuff lovely
6: <laughs> well, just uh, on that sort of similar vein, you obviously, your your specialism is is in the natural world. Um, 200 years ago, the theory of evolution was was, was not even around. Um, so that must have changed uh, extraordinary. You must have, in your own research, seen the difference in our understanding of nature as well, just through th- these Christmas lectures.
5: Well, yes, and that's a really interesting thing, actually, because, I mean, Charles Darwin didn't give a Christmas lecture. He he could have done, um, was never invited to, to do that. I don't actually know the full ins and outs of the, um, maybe the personalities of the guys who are running the institution. Possibly there was something going on there politically that meant that he wouldn't be the one to step up on stage. I, I don't know enough about that. Um, equally, they, you know, he... Um, the theory of evolution was and continues to be, to some extent, but certainly back then was very controversial and um and was lots of uh, toings and froings about what he was saying in terms of well, usually it was mostly link, linked to human evolution and, and this idea that we had evolved from other animals was quite unacceptable to to many people and it flew in the face of many religious beliefs. So yeah, so Darwin wasn't invited in. Um, in fact, it's kind of remarkable that evolution as a topic wasn't covered in the Christmas lectures until um richard dawkins came in in uh, in 1991 and uh and he was that he gave an explosive series of lectures quite literally um to, uh, to explore this idea of, of the theory of evolution. So, so I don't know why it hadn't been talked about before then. Um, possibly it was considered to be too tricky a subject for a young audience. I don't think it is. And, and Dawkins did do a fantastic job of, of bringing it to life and talking about Darwin and what we know now about evolution. As you say, it did definitely reframe our view of the natural world. And I think what I saw, even though the lectures early on weren't about evolution, but what, what I saw as a shift um, in those natural history lectures um, from early on to, to the more kind of modern day was we were really moving away from just a descriptive science. So so um, natural history really used to be about just going out and finding new species and, and venturing out into the world and understanding what was out there, which has its place and is still really important. But gradually moving on to a, a kind of more holistic view of it of as a science of looking at connections between species and understanding um, how ecosystems work and um, how, how this whole living world fits together like a, a jigsaw puzzle rather than just finding species and giving them names and sticking them in museums um and then gradually moving on to understanding how humans are impacting um, the natural world as well so we have shifted that view uh, to some extent um, and you know emerged with this kind of a bigger picture of the world around us
6: how has the sort of style of the lectures changed over the course of the last 200 years to sort of really bring this understanding towards the children
5: it's a really good question and a little bit hard to know for sure how the lecturers kind of delivered their material um early on because obviously there's no um there's no film or kind of audio footage which is such a shame i'd love to have been a fly on the wall in some of those early ones um we do have things at the books the um, lecturers wrote and and actually early on the, a really valuable resource for me as i was digging into the past were newspaper reports um and it's um, it seems that there was it was quite common for some of the, the national newspapers to actually give a kind of daily report on what happened in the, in each of the lectures. So that gave me a really rich view um, as to what happened and how the audience responded. And I mean, I'm sure to some extent, the lecturers were probably not quite as, um, I don't know, aware of how to speak to kids and to make it brilliantly exciting and not just to kind of drone on about the stuff they know about um but um but clearly early even right from the beginning so um, the first lecture in my book is is um 1911 it was the first lecture called the childhood of animals um and by a guy called um Peter Chalmers Mitchell, who was um, head of London Zoo at the time. And, and he did what basically every single lecturer in my book did, which was bring in live animals into the lecture theatre. And, um, and with, you know, some level of chaos probably, but also just clearly engaging the kids incredibly kind of vividly with with these real creatures right in front of them. And certainly early on, I don't know this, these days whether the kids are allowed to come up and play with them, but there are lots of lovely photos of kids and drawings actually from the early early ones. Um, drawings of kids sort of rushing up and petting the pet lion. Well, not a pet lion, but the the, the cat's lion, baby lion and things like that. So I think um, certainly with these, yeah, these kind of ecological natural history lectures, having live specimens in the audience in in the room was something that really brought things alive to kids. And there was, you know, reports of oohs and ahs and oh no and sort of scared responses from kids, seeing great big snakes and all sorts of bits and pieces, um, you know, and birds flying flapping around the room and all all this kind of stuff so that's something I think that, that sort of leads all the way through my lectures is this bringing the wildlife into the room has, has definitely helped to, to engage kids um, but uh, but nowadays I mean I think the lecturers the the, the, the lecturers giving them the Christmas lectures these days they do an amazing job of just so many demonstrations and kind of hands-on things. I think it's something insane, like every six minutes they have to do, they do something different rather than just talking. Um, you know, so they they work really hard to get these lectures to be as dynamic and as um, involved as they can be. And that, you know, I think and actually, talking to the lecturers who I who I featured in the book, who were still around, they said that was that was a challenge. But the kind of most exciting part of it was um, to to find ways to to do those sorts of experiments and um, in front of the kids and and to make it really dynamic and exciting.
6: Did you get a feel from them? Uh... The, the process they had to go through to actually come up with these incredible lectures
5: all of them are such fabulous um, communicators and lecturers I think they were all bursting with material they wanted to talk about um, possibly they didn't manage to get in everything they wanted to um, I think it was um, Lloyd Peck from the British Antarctic Survey who gave his lectures in 2004 um, about Antarctica um, and I think he said he basically realised that he had to kind of <laughs> basically sort of, he wasn't going to get through all the material he was hoping to um so so even though they look entirely packed uh, and they seem you know completely packed full of wonderful information they don't get everything and they want to so I think I think finding stuff to talk about isn't not a problem it's um just I guess think really thinking about what the kids will engage with and uh, and how they'll be you know what, what excites them and and what kind of depth to go into um certainly watching back that was the other lovely thing I got to do, which was um, which was watch back all the lectures that are available on on, uh, on tape, which goes back to David Attenborough in 1973 um, and coming forward from there. So I had all of those lectures to watch back, which was really, really good fun. That was a great, a great part of this job. Um, but the latest one in my book, Sue Hartley gave lectures in 2009 about plants and insects. And hers are just absolutely full of really hilariously funny and brilliant um, demonstrations and experiments. She brings something that could be completely out of sight like tiny insects eating plants sounds a bit boring but she did such a great job and speaking to her she just um she clearly just had an absolute wow of a time just brilliant fun interacting with the kids and just just having a hoot basically so it was just a joy to watch back
6: the foreword of your book is by david attenborough and it sounds like he was he was just sitting on the fence a bit as to as to whether to do it
5: <laughs> yes it's a lovely story actually I mean obviously it obviously all worked out in the end but um, he claims that basically a couple of weeks before the lectures themselves he he panicked and got incredibly cold feet uh, realising that what he was doing was doing the two things he had told not to do on TV which is uh, work with children and uh, with animals and the kids were obviously fine but uh, all these live animals he was convinced were not going to do what he wanted them to do and this was on live TV um, they broadcast them live back then now I think they do record them so if anything does go just disastrously wrong they can redo it and I had a few stories of things that went wrong from some of the lecturers more recently but um, yes yeah, so i think Attenborough was was just terrified and kind of the ironic thing was that he was controller of bbc2 and he um i think he was really pivotal in getting the lectures on television and getting the whole thing televised and he said no they must be live <laughs> we need to have that immediate kind of feeling of us all being in the room together. And then of course it came round and sort of bit him on the bum a bit <laughs> because he was then the one doing the lectures. Um, apparently they sat him down though and said, don't be silly, you can do it. Um, and it all did go pretty much to plan. And the stuff that didn't, um, it's just quite fun. You know, when the animals don't quite do what they're supposed to. There's a, a porcupine uh, that won't come out of its box. And you can see the look on Artemis' face of like, I knew this would happen. <laughs> this is exactly what I was expecting. (laughs) And a few little experiments. There's one where he's talked, because his lectures were about the languages of animals. So he's talking about how animals um, communicate with each other. And one was an experiment playing the sounds of a, a mother hen and the chicks. He brought out these cute little cheeping chip, chicks uh, that uh, were supposed to respond and sort of scurry across the room uh, at the sound of this this hen. But they completely ignored it and so they didn't, didn't pay any attention at all.
6: <laughs> so he was the, the one that sort of organised it to go live on TV. Um, is that when it really became so popular and so ingrained in British society about the Christmas lectures?
5: I imagine it probably was, actually, because up until that point, it was only those lucky kids who got to go into the into the room, the 100 or 200, however many it is that fit in the lecture theatre. So, yes, I think um, putting on TV was a brilliant idea because it really opened it up uh, to so many more more people. Um, And and yeah, and it just sort of became this. uh, this Well, c- certainly, I think, you know, for, for me and for loads of people I've spoken to, just it became that thing you look forward to every year. You knew it was going to be on um, sometime between Christmas and, and New Year. You, you knew it was going to be some new subject, um, whether it was biology, physics, chemistry, all sorts of things. So, um, you know, it was something always to look forward to, you know, and I, I always liked the ones that were about the things that I knew I was most interested in, so this natural world stuff. But then it always found my brain being exploded when it was stuff that I didn't know anything about as well, you know, sort of um the other aspects of of science, all this cosmology stuff and everything else has always been been so fascinating. So, yeah, so now I think it really has. It's become, you know, Alongside the Queen's speech, I think it's really an institution at Christmas time
6: for all the kids that watch it. Um, you know, I've watched them when I was a a, a, a wee young lad. <laughs> um, it's just it's just so inspirational uh, as a as a programme that will continue, won't it?
5: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the um, I think the the Royal Institution does a a brilliant job of of finding people to do the lectures. And who are talking about stuff in in really innovative ways now? I think you know often lots of lot of the lectures now bring in lots of aspects of technology and how that's affecting our lives and and really bringing science into the world um, you know bang up to date right around us at the moment. So so I think they will absolutely continue to be incredibly inspirational and really reflecting on on our times and what's going on and, and discoveries you know linking up to space and all, all these sorts of amazing things that we can do now um, but still grounded in a tradition of um, basically a series of lectures which in itself I think is again kind of wonderful that this hasn't they haven't kind of moved off and turned it into some sort of flashy documentary series it's basically still about a brilliant science communicator, um, given the chance to tell the audience about their subject and bring it to life just by talking to them, essentially, and and bringing in you know wonderful ideas for experiments and everything else. But you know, essentially, it's the same idea, which I think is is really great.
6: And in another two hundred years, we'll be looking back at it.
5: I hope so. Yes, who knows? And who knows what changes we'll will track in the time as well. You know, it's it's history in the making, really. I guess, isn't it? It's as tracking science as it happens because again all of the lectures that i looked at a lot of them would feature discoveries that had just been made and and that's really wonderful so we had lectures from the 50s about how animals move and the guy was invited in who had just discovered that fish um can see with electricity and um, they live in these murky rivers in africa and they use electricity like a bat uses sound and he'd only just discovered that the previous year um attenborough had various bits of new science he had a thing about how someone had just worked out that unhatched um, birds' eggs, the chicks inside, will listen to each other and coordinate so they will hatch at the same time. Um, and these were things that, you know, it was like literally that year that had been discovered. Um, so I really think this is a great way of bringing science in a really immediate way to kids too. So yeah, who knows? Who knows what we'll discover in the next 200 years? How exciting.
4: So that was Helen Scales talking to Alexander McNamara in an interview originally recorded for the Science Focus podcast. Their latest episode is due out today, the 21st of December, and can be downloaded from iTunes and sciencefocus.com. Meanwhile, Helen Scales's book, entitled 11 Explorations into Life on Earth, Christmas Lectures from the Royal Institution, is out now published by Michael O'Mara. And you can watch this year's lectures on BBC4, beginning on Boxing Day at 8pm. Okay, well that's about it for today, but please do join us again on Christmas Day when we'll be broadcasting our annual Christmas quiz. It's an episode I'm sure you won't want to miss.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook?